Hello, and welcome to another episode of Shook with Ashley Marie Preston. I'm your host, Ashley Marie Preston. And since we've began the show, you're probably used to me saying that I'm joined in the studio by Kyle Sarge. Kyle is in San Francisco uh, for this episode, taking care of some other business. But joining me in the studio today is editor and publisher of The Blunt Post, Vic Jeremy. Hello. How are you? You've been a man of the world. You just recently got back from Armenia? I did. I came back from Armenia. What was that like? It was, um, you know, I didn't know what to expect. It was a, like an amazing, amazing experience. Uh, it was really a, a yeah. eye-opening. As an Armenian-American man, like, did you feel some sense of, like, ancestry or some kind of anything oh, there? Absolutely. Or was absolutely. You know, I wasn't born in Armenia, so it was sort of kind of cool to reconnect and, and think that, you know, somewhere down the line my ancestors came, came from there. There's a lot of rich history and beautiful people, and I had a really, really good time. <laughs> I'm sort of still in that, like, dream type space in my head the glow is on you the glow is on you like in fact i'm trying to absorb Uh, some of that calm (laughs) it has been a absolute shit show for me but all beautiful things um just learning how to set boundaries learning how to say no that was actually the self-care tip of the last episode just learning to say no setting boundaries and limits and knowing that the responsibility isn't always on you and that sometimes when we can't say no we're actually stealing an opportunity from someone else to show up in the world yeah and no is a complete sentence yes Hmm. absolutely so speaking Hmm. of being complete one of the best experiences i ever had is the self-care tip of the day and it is acupuncture right Being connected with your body, um, feeling centered. Some of the the medical benefits of acupuncture is that it cures back pain, neck pain, nausea, migraine, headache, anxiety, depression, insomnia, and infertility. I was actually over 500 pounds at one point, and I was going to see an acupuncturist to helped me stay calm, but I ended up losing a ton of weight. They would put the needles in my ears. There will be some in my nose. I've seen things on the internet where they do it in your stomach or different parts, but I wasn't OG status like that. Right. <laughs> Have it's, you ever had it? It's I've, I've done it once. Uh, I did it for back pain. Um, it helped a little bit. I do know that um, you, know, you have to be consistent with it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's centuries old medicine by Eastern cultures and it's people swear by it. I'm, I've heard people uh, have said that they've tried all different types of um, uh, remedies for different things. And it wasn't until acupuncture that they were cured or at least it was under control um, issues that they had. Um, especially back pain I've heard a lot uh, among other things yeah I think what I love about acupuncture the most in any form of eastern medicine is that essentially it puts you in control of your own health there's not a large corporation or anything attached to your well-being so it's always a good thing to be able to to keep it simple right (laughs) right they haven't found a way to uh, put a label on it and produce it at CVS (laughs) 
So we are going to go ahead and jump right into the show. We have an amazing guest today. Um, he is an actor, activist, kick-ass change maker. Many of you recognize him from his role on Orange is the New Black. And for those of you who don't watch that show, perhaps you know him from How to, to Get Away with Murder. Joining us in the studio today is Matt McGorry. What's up? Hey. Hello. It's good to see you. I feel like I always follow. I'm always with you every single day because I'm like on all of your posts, like in the streets, like turning up, talking about white supremacy, discrimination, the importance of not separating families. You're one of the few people that I can honestly say that there's never a question as to whether you're doing the work. Like it's there. I that means uh, that means the world to me. I, I really appreciate that, um, and I feel like very much the same way. I you know get to follow you along on your adventures as well, and so it's it's fun and and funny that this is the first time we're really sort of getting yeah. to meet first uh, <laughs> place place to place face to face. You know, I think I'm uh, a little low on a little low on sleep, like you might be as well. Same, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, it's 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 fantastic to be here, and and I'm just. Yeah, I'm stoked to be a part of the conversation. So we were talking about acupuncture. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had acupuncture or any kind of... What are you doing for self-care? Because I see you everywhere, but I'm curious about your self-care. Yeah, you know, I actually... It's it's a plan to try acupuncture soon. I've got some kind of ling- lingering um, uh, injuries um, that are not going away as easily as I would like them to. So that's definitely sort of in the cards for me in the future. Um, a big thing for me uh, has always been therapy. You know, I've been doing therapy for over half my life. I grew up in New York City, so I think that might be partly, you know, a New York thing too. Um, yeah. But to me, that's that's really so huge, you know. And um, the idea of I liked what you said about no being, you know, someone else's opportunity too, right? And mm-hmm. I think so often in the work, especially as as activists, um, there's so many things that are so pressing and dire um, that it's it's very hard to say no. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've even realized myself that being able to being able to do that more also allows me without without being able to say no, I can't really do um, my best work, and that includes as an artist, as a human being, and also as an activist and an organizer. Um, it, I can't really vision for the future if I'm always in sort of the panic mode right. of like trying to like you know stick my finger in the dam. Um, right. So I appreciate the no is is a big one that I'm constantly sort of learning and raising the bar on for myself. So definitely learning and raising the bar is always a part of our ultimate evolution as not only activists, artists, creators, but just as individuals navigating life, um, trying to figure out this human experience. And so you talked about starting out in New York. Uh, when did you move to California from New York? Yeah, so I uh, I grew up in New York City and um, I always said that I wouldn't move to LA unless work brought me out here. And Fortunately, it did. So <laughs> I, I booked How to Get Away with Murder, I guess, probably around five years ago. Um, and then had to figure out pretty quickly how to drive because uh, uh-huh. I grew up in Manhattan. And, I don't uh, know how to drive still. Actually. Oh, you don't? Okay. No. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a little bit of a, it's a trip. You know, have you have you taken any lessons or anything? Or? No, like I, I think because when I was 16, I was on medication mm. and I remember getting in the car to learn how to drive and I drove me and my cousin into a ditch and mm. he was like, thanks for playing. Right, right, not. right. And so I feel also that I'm one of those people, there are so many things going on through my head mm. at so many times that I don't know that I'm supposed to be driving. Right. 
And I feel that perhaps maybe there should be more people in the world who can be that honest sure. and have that level of self-awareness that yeah. it's like, I don't necessarily want to put others in danger. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's, that makes <laughs> sense. And, and, you know, it, it seems like, you know, taking like a lift, you know, makes, if that's sort of your mode of transportation, that's yeah. just like, it's very easy to do. And and in many ways comparable price wise, um, mm-hmm. you know, not that I'm like doing a, a uh, sponsorship for Lyft, <laughs> um, but now I feel that. Yeah, now I feel that. Um, and, I, you know, so yeah, so I came out here about, f- I guess like five years ago and it was a pretty immediate switch for me, which was very strange because I was always, always said that like New York was the place that I was going to be and it was like in my blood and uh, when I came out here, when I visited LA, I didn't love it. It just felt like too slow. And then I think, um, sorry. Oh, oh no, I was I was just sitting here nodding for those of you who are wondering. Like I felt like that about New York. Mm. Like it, like it was so fast mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it was so crowded. And I tend to kind of sometimes be, um, isn't it called like agoraphobic or like when uh-huh. you have like a fear, like an anxiety, like of like too many people. Yeah. Um, and so when I go to New York, I make it very clear. Like I have to have a car from here to there and I don't even really leave the hotel. Like unless it's somewhere where I can walk because the underground for those who haven't used the subway system Mm -hmm. in New York, it's like a city beneath the city. Absolutely. Yeah. It's intense. And, (laughs) And I think, I think when you're, when you're in the thick of it, like so many things, you don't really necessarily, it's harder to realize what kind of toll it it plays on you right um and i think for me you know sort of is what i call like you know recovering from sort of workaholic tendencies uh, i think new york definitely pushes me in that way in a way that i you know again is maybe sort of considered in the broader sense of the world you know good and helps me be quote unquote successful and at the same time you know when we talk about self care i think it's very easy for me to run myself into the ground because I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I, because of uh, growing up in New York and, and sort of it's constantly, yeah, constantly yeah. going and going. And, and, you know, so one of the privileges of growing up in New York is that, you know, and growing up in Manhattan uh, is that there's these, you know, access to resources and to like, you know, my interests are, are well supported by, you know, when I was nine and I wanted to be a magician, one of the best magic stores in the country is like four blocks from where I grew up. You know, mm-hmm. um, so I think about that, too, in terms of both the ability to have access to those things and then also the privilege of that, which is, of course, not unrelated to my whiteness and to, uh, you know, my, my family's socioeconomic background that mm-hmm. allows, um, you know, that that early access, which is, I think, many times what allows people to um, climb up sort of more successfully, more quickly. Yeah. And when you came out here, too, um, I'm sure it must have felt nice to know that you were going to a family. So coming here for work and then Im- immediately going to uh, How to Get Away with Murder. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like meeting like your uh, cast, other cast members and your team for the first time? Yeah. Uh, so we actually we shot the pilot in Philadelphia. And oh, okay. it was sort of the first time that any of us had ever been to Philadelphia. And it was it was really cool because it felt like we were sort of almost at camp, you know, none of us knew any mm-hmm. people there, you know, it wasn't like we we're shooting in New York or LA where we had other friends who would potentially, you know, maybe be the people that we would, you know, hang out with. And, uh, so we ended up just, you know, we stayed in a, we were all in a hotel and just got to hang out and really get to know each other over the course of a month. And it's just a really lovely group of people. Um, and Dutch indulge my foodiness mm-hmm. is the Philly cheesesteak really, you know, I didn't have it. 
Really? I did. I, I kept thinking that I was going to have it and I kept pushing it off and then I never had it. So, and now I. So don't, the moral of the story is follow your dreams, boys and girls. That's that. right. That's right. That's right. Whichever way it takes you. Yeah. So you uh, came here and you were working on that show. And then when did your did your activism uh, life pick up? Because I feel like for those of us who are involved in social justice, there's this turning point that happens. Mm -hmm. Typically, it could be an isolated incident. It could be maybe um, a popular cultural event that's taken place. Like, what was that for you? Yeah. I mean, there was a couple, there were like three things that really sort of built on one one another. And, and, and the first was I was part of uh, this article for a, for a women's magazine about, about sort of male allies to women, but you know, the bar is very low. Um, mm-hmm. So at the time that didn't mean <laughs> that I was at all politically engaged because I wasn't, that just meant that I had been on, you know, Orange is a New Black and was now on How to Get With Murder, which are shows that have obviously uh, very diverse casts um, and lots of women um, sort of associated with and writing on it. Uh, and as part of that, we had to read a book and that was sort of my first time ever becoming even slightly aware of the privilege that I had in, in that sort of direct of a way. Um, uh, as someone who had always thought of myself as being pretty, um, pretty self-critical and pretty introspective. Um, I was kind of baffled that I had never <laughs> considered these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was dating a woman at the time who was a entrepreneur and, and working on starting a business. And I remember um, she was in New York at the time and I was in LA and she was extremely frustrated and called me and, and you know, because she kept having these meetings um, with potential investors and then they would either turn into like, oh, actually, uh, you know, I can't do lunch, but let's make it drinks. And then that would turn into them hitting on her. And then she was constantly trying to find the line of like not being, uh, you know, not being so cold that she was a B word and not being so friendly mm-hmm. that she was a, a flirt or a tease. Um, and for me, I realized, wow, this is just something I would never, ever, ever have to deal with. Just to be able to exist. Just to be able to exist, mm-hmm. right? And, and and to not have to constantly question why someone is meeting with me. All, all this wasted time, even from a, not even including the dehumanizing aspect of it, but just even from a an economics of starting a business aspect, right? Like the amount of wasted time that she would have to spend that I would never have to spend was just kind of remarkable. And then I started to feel like powerless in the sense of like wanting to help, but realizing that there was nothing I could do. And she sort of was like, well, this is just the way the world is. Um, Mm -hmm. And the final event really was, uh, I was watching Emma Watson's He for for She uh, UN address. And uh, there's that quote at the end that is uh, not her quote, but is often said of, you know, if not me, who, if not now, when? And it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was like, Oh yeah, I this I need to this is I need to do this, you know, and and it was really like a switch uh, went off where I was I it occurred to me that I hadn't even seen any other men and, and white men really talking about these issues, and at that time it was just gender, and of course at that time it was a very binary view of gender as well. So mm-hmm. I was thinking quote unquote women's issues, mm-hmm. um, and then I knew at that moment I was like, well, I gotta <laughs> I gotta do something, um, and that really began the journey for me. And did you? ever have any because in a perfect world we would just step onto the scene and all of our friends are woke and everybody has like the graphic tees carrying some kind of like important Mm -hmm. message and everyone is aware of their privilege and they're utilizing it to uh, economically empower disenfranchised populations Mm -hmm. but that's typically not the case and when you're a cis heteronormative man 
and you're talking about women's issues and you're talking about being inclusive and um and um seeking equity for them there tends to be kind of this snubbing that takes mm. place so did you ever have like did your social circle um change because of your politics like did it start to yeah you know i'll say that i'm thankful that um you know my closest friends you know we've always sort of prided ourselves on uh i think the principles that social justice needs to be sort of related to right like Mm -hmm. the the you know obviously we had we did not have a, a social justice lens on that which in my view is frankly uh, bullshit. If you're having, a, if you're having a, if your goal is to be the best human being you can be, and you don't have a social justice lens on it, especially if you're a cis white man, then it's bullshit. Um, and so I was able to bring this into my closest friendships. Um, I would say with with other cis white men, and you know, there were some relationships. I would say with among my, among my best friends, uh, there was no one that I felt like I needed to completely like, lose in the process, which right. is pretty awesome. Because um, I know that we had um, Farhood Mebodi, um, mm-hmm. uh, who's actually a part of the Man Enough Project as mm-hmm. well, which we'll get to that in a second yeah. uh, through Wayfair. And um, and he was saying it was actually quite, you know, the opposite. It was a thing of like, kind of a douchebag. Mm-hmm. You know, there was kind of this like... Um, Middle Eastern idea of what masculinity looks mm. like and the role that women uh, play in our lives, which he was talking about that that was his experience. But I'm like, that's not too far off the mark from America. I think that's global. Absolutely. Like this kind of global idea of what masculinity looks like. And he was just saying that when he realized that he was hurting women and that th- there had actually been things that he felt bad about and how he even felt horrible that when he went to apologize to some mm. of these women, they were like, oh, no, you didn't do anything. Mm. And it was like, the fact that you've been socialized right. into that to the point where you're numb to it. Right. Um, and so it's always interesting to kind of uh, take a look at uh, different uh, circles where these conversations take place. Absolutely. And um, identify what the experiences have been. And so definitely um, <laughs> Man Enough is probably one of my favorite um uh, uh, shows or online content that I like to follow because mm. it's Thank revolutionary you. that men would not only come together to talk about their feelings or talk about their their emotions, but they're talking about their social responsibility mm. around uh, women's issues, um, family dynamics, um, LGBTQ people, even like how um, cis hetero men pretty much uh, influence the world, right? And so how did you become a part of that project? Yeah, so, you know, building on what we were just talking about as well, you know, for me, uh, there, there was there was a scary point um, in my sort of development when I was becoming radicalized and I was not sure where that was going to end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I didn't want to be the person, you know, like this, this is part of the thing, right? Like... When, when it comes to men talking to other men about sort of uh, about sexism and things like that and rape culture, you know, there's obviously an inherent, uh, you know, breaking of sort of the quote unquote man code, mm-hmm. right? That we, you know, that we, uh, it's bros before hoes, quote mm-hmm. unquote, you know, and, and that sort of thing. So there's that aspect too, where it's like all of a sudden all these interactions and like jokes that we had been making for a long time, I realized how problematic they were. Um, and uh, so... Basically, I'd be the person who is constantly sort of pointing that out, um, and I was—I would say that I'm thankful that we 
developed a way to have those conversations in a way that literally, I mean, if, if you're a friend of mine, you know that every time we hang out, we're going to be having conversations about white supremacy and, and sexism and all those things. So that's just part of the course. And that's true for even my non-activist cis-hetero white friends. Um, and I love that you said that. Um, even for the non-activist, cis-heteronormative friends, because even before all of the social and political um, upheaval Mm -hmm, (laughs) as of mm -hmm. late took place, um, we've had this idea that, oh, this is political and Mm -hmm. I'm not political, which is really a place of privilege because my Mm -hmm. very existence in each layer of my identities is political by nature. So I don't get to pick and choose like... Yeah. There's no choice. Yeah. We, you know, um, earlier you were talking about the woman you were dating and how she was trying to get a business off the mm-hmm. ground. She had to deal with so much <laughs> sexism and misogyny. And what came to my mind is she was just trying to be average. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the LGBT movement or the women's rights movement, mm-hmm. it's the right to be average. Right. Not special, just average. Yep. And that's a choice that a lot of us don't have. Right. Um, and I was thinking, um, what was going through my mind, a little bit of a change of topic is as an actor, you know, who's, you know, very successful, you have, uh, two major shows, um, among other things, a lot of actors, when their, their star rises, okay. And, and they, um, they become safe. Mm -hmm. So in order to appeal Mm -hmm. to the masses, you know, all of America and, um, you know, I do know that they're 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 A list actors that are very socially conscious, they're very politically, and they do very well, and they're very respected for it. Um, do you ever feel that pressure that as you're to get bigger and bigger as you have that that your your I don't want to use the word politics, but your you know very um, pressure highly intellectual yeah. um, you know your thoughts and your activism that somehow that will um, you know, get in the way or your appeal will not be as universal. Sure, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's sort of, I would say, you know, in the couple of years now, essentially, that I've been political, that's, it's an ongoing thing, right? And mm-hmm. and and for me, to be in integrity with who I am and who I want to be, I have to be constantly pushing those boundaries, Amen. right? And, and I will say that in some ways, it's it's crossed a point where it's now easier because, you know, there was a point where, you know, when these when these ideas were new to me, you know, and understanding why something was wrong or problematic, but it wasn't necessarily rooted in the in the like depths of my soul and my bones. And more often I would make decisions of like, oh, can I do this or is this is this contributing to the problem? I'm still doing more than most other white guys, so maybe I can do this. Mm-hmm. And now I'm at a point where, first of all, people uh, you know, part, part of the thing is like when you're speaking out on issues, right? Like you make, you're holding yourself accountable publicly. So when I'm mm-hmm. talking about these issues, right. if I go and then do something that is problematic, mm-hmm. I will be held accountable, right? right? And so in that same way, I've kind of ripped off the Band-Aid, right? Uh, for a while, I was doing lots of brand things and, and promotion sort of stuff that is basically non-existent anymore for me. Um and was a pretty significant part of my income was like 20 to 25% mm-hmm. of my income. Um, and, but now also I don't have to worry if, if what I want to say is going to okay. be that problem. You know, and I think it's interesting too, because we always like, 
yes, celebrities have like a lot to lose and are under a microscope and stuff like that. But when you look at it proportionally to what other people have to lose, it is not even remotely close, right? Sure. So in absolute terms, while my 20 or 25% of my income might be a lot of money, you know, when we're looking at like a, a poor, like, you know, trans woman of color speaking out at work, um, you know, the risk is so much greater. Or getting yeah. work. Or giving, getting work in the first place, right? Yeah. So I think that is always, as when I speak to other celebrities, something we have to keep in mind too, is like we're, what we're ultimately talking about here, the risk we're talking about is is one in, in a range of extraordinary privilege, right? And and how do I reshift my thinking so that I'm, that, so that I can be in what the necessary awe of the folks that are marginalized who are taking greater risks when they speak about this shit every single day than I am as a white man, right? They're never, people are never gonna call me racist, right? Well, that's the reason why. So like a lot of people are like, oh my God, like it's so interesting. Like every time we go on the internet or I click on certain shows or there you are mm. and you're talking about all these things and 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 you um, as a black trans woman are really shifting the social ecology around how we talk about a lot of these issues. Mm. But what people don't recognize is that there's kind of like a less softer side of Sears. Like there's some of that is actually... Um, I would have made it to where I wanted to be probably years ago mm. had I uh, kneeled down and kissed the ring. Right. Um, and the thing about me is that I spent most of my life living under a rock for fear that my light would blind other people, mm. for fear that people wouldn't like me, that they wouldn't accept me, that I wouldn't be invited to play any of the reindeer games. Mm. And little did I know that the person I was running away from was the person that was carrying the keys to my purpose and my destiny. Mm. And I now recognize that, like, it's not that it's okay, but it's like, wow, like, I definitely see why some people are, like, afraid because they don't want to lose those opportunities. They don't want to have people like come after them. But the reality is that there's a reason why femmes of color, black uh, women, brown women, indigenous, um, trans are the nuts and bolts to these major movements because mm -hmm. we're the few that have nothing left to lose. Mm -hmm. And so for me, and Vic and I were actually talking about this on the way, it's like, mm -hmm. Even when I hear people sometimes talk about trans identity and they're just like, oh, well, you know, I get it. You know, I'm a trans woman. But then in my mind, it's like, OK, but you're still a white trans woman. Mm -hmm. So I was born in America black. Mm -hmm. And then it's this thing where we then also discuss that we're not talking about it's like we're not engaging in the oppression Olympics. Right. We're just simply saying that when some of those, um, I call it multi-tier marginalization, mm -hmm. when some of those oppressed identities overlap, you have this um, exponential exposure to greater harm and danger. Right. And so for you, it sounds like right out the gate, you came into it recognizing that, um, okay, I have this bit of privilege. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely have a responsibility, so mm -hmm. I have to get involved. But one of the things I like about your activism is that uh, it's always in concert with education. Mm. So you like I call it like the Matt McGorry book club <laughs> because like on your Instagram, you always like post these books. And I find that fascinating because many people probably don't pick up on this, mm. but I catch it. It's typically a woman of color. Mm hmm. And you always show the cover of the book so they know the name and then they also know who to look for. And then you will kind of like uh, highlight certain things that stand out yep. to you. And 
you're actually economically empowering these women and these people who are doing the labor Mm -hmm. of educating and teaching and putting in all this work instead of what typically happens is when white people come in sometimes they have this tendency to kind of co-op these narratives Mm -hmm. and um somewhat um exploit these communities so they get the information they get the goods which i've always said um education without compensation is exploitation and what so when did you start doing that yeah well and look i'll say that you know i'm not above you know coming into it and i think being a part of some of those problematic Mm -hmm. dynamics right i think you know in in my mind you know what it wasn't a conscious decision but you know part of uh, mm-hmm. Part of the way we've been socialized, and this is, you know, the waters that we swim in of white supremacy and and uh, sexism and cis sexism and uh, you know saviorism, right? These these mm-hmm. sort of narratives of of saviorism that is how we are taught that change happens. It's how we're taught mm-hmm. that it happens from history. It's how we're taught that it happens in movies, right? And so when I come when I came into the movement, I wasn't doing the job the best way that I could right and that was and that was because I had to unlearn some things and and learn some things simultaneously so you know when I initially started you know I was very loud you know and, and I think what what ended, up hap- what ended up happening was also I think the narrative that gets pushed through the media of what causes change and what is worth elevating is part of what influences people's thinking into how change is created, right? So if we take a look, for example, at Anne Hathaway uh, recently, you know, talking, speaking out against the murder of Nia Wilson, um, which is important that she does and that every white celebrity does as well. And at the same time, um, we have to understand that that is not the extent of the work, right? And, And we have to understand as well that as a woman with enormous amounts of privilege, um, you know, who's still a woman, but a white woman with enormous amounts of privilege. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, she is risking alienating people um, and potentially some opportunities. But I think the question is like, really, how much further can we push that? Right. Like, how, how does that not be the bar of what activism as a white person looks like? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the media want to elevate that. Right. Because it is a very sort of uh, convenient way of doing so um that does kinda not like the sheet cake kind of like <laughs> sorry what was that <laughs> like the sheet cake um thing with uh tina um, was it tina fey that was like making the joke about it on saturday night live kind of like this idea that looking for these ways of like trying to um process uh outrage yes. or like dealing with not recognizing that you still have a safe bubble to exist in in yes. which you're like the boot of white supremacy is not up against your neck constantly. Right. right. Um, and so I think, and it's really interesting because there's like two different sides, uh, two different, not sides, two different lenses to talk about that through. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, one definitely is recognizing that there's always more, like you have to be willing to put your privilege on the line to right. put your, when we talked about uh, Charlottesville, like Heather Heyer, like yes. that kind of, she, her life was on the line. Yes. So it's, you recently um, had an incident in which you were actually arrested. And mm-hmm. I remember reading what was written and I went on there and I think I was on like per usual, like two hours of sleep, <laughs> but I must have wrote like every emoji and every mm. like exclamation and that like I had so much fucking respect for you doing that because the reality is that there are so many people that once the heat kicks up 
they excuse themselves, you know, and they go back to being in that place of like safety, being in that place of like um, feeling as though like, um, well, I'm a good person because like I, I, I don't, I'm not racist and I'm not this, but yet you're still benefiting from a system that is. Absolutely. And And, yeah, yeah, no, and I would say, and, and additionally, we can easily pat ourselves on the back that we're maybe doing more than the other uh, white woman or, or white guy, right? And, mm-hmm. and, but at the same time, right, it's like the question of, yes, we can support that. We can support that initial action and build on that too. And I think, you know, in, in terms of processing how that related to even my own sort of journey was I started to see the things that would get the media's attention, right? Mm-hmm. I, and and part of that was centering myself. Mm-hmm. And in, in my mind, I thought, well, I just need to keep kind of hammering that, right? The, the broader the message gets out there, the better. Uh, but what I didn't realize in doing that was I was continually centering myself. And uh, and it was also, it wasn't sort of the deeper work that needed to get done. Not to mention the fact that the people that always obviously picked up those articles were usually women's magazines, right? Who are not mm-hmm. necessarily the people that need to be reading that. So for me, actually, a big sort of turning point was uh, this book uh, called We Were Feminists Once by Andy Zeisler and it has a section on like celebrity feminism that mm-hmm. I found very interesting and then I started to understand how I was sort of playing into some of these dynamics um, because of I think my own internalized sort of uh, superiority you mm-hmm. know and so that was something to unlearn right and to basically be like at some point I have to show up in community to actually if I really want to understand how to do this work and I think that's what so many f- white folks and men we often don't times often at times don't understand about the work is not just what we're doing it's about how we're doing it and who is it benefiting exactly because there is this kind of like culture around benevolence Mm -hmm. in which people they believe that well you know out of the kindness of my heart and look at how amazing i am and i love i love the gays like not the lgbtq community the gays Mm -hmm. you know and i love the fact that you call them the gays right in quotes, as right. if we're accessories <laughs> right right yeah and i know a couple of mexicans and oh they make the and it's just like okay but <sighs> again what are you doing to dismantle those systems that are oppressing uh disenfranchised communities because unless you're actively working to dismantle them yeah. you are a part of the problem therefore complicit absolutely there was a reason why like i brought up the the arrest because yes. You have also been doing some work around uh, jail reform. Mm-hmm. This has been an interesting topic. And I reached out to a mutual friend of ours, mm-hmm. uh, Patrice Colors, mm-hmm. um, and kind of because initially when I heard about jail reform, mm-hmm. in my mind, it was like, uh, so what? So we're saying that people shouldn't be arrested. Mm-hmm. Like they should just like do all kinds of things and like would this exacerbate crime like with this and then it wasn't until I actually and I'm still not the expert on it which is why I actually started participating um uh, with some of the work and the events and kind of like asking questions and doing mm-hmm. my homework um how did you become involved with that and how did it tie into the experience that you recently had yeah um so I've been you know for me my you know the social justice started in 
I would say feminism, but I like to be more specific than that, right? It didn't start in feminism because in me, feminism has to include intersectionality. Mm-hmm. So it started in in white feminism, right? And mm-hmm. or or I like to call it anti-sexism, right? Because if we're truly looking at feminism through intersectionality, where it's not just about gender and it's not just about women, it's about non-binary people, it's about uh, disabled folks, it's about uh, fat folks, it's about you know all the different identities that people can have. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the book that I read that really sort of changed my world in that way was the new jim crow by michelle alexander i'm getting there yes i haven't got there yet but i hear it's it 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 made me feel um you you know how like some people say were you ready you weren't ready i wasn't ready (laughs) i I wasn't ready and and i was so furious also that i'd gone my whole life not knowing about this being again someone raised in new york city in chelsea you know, in a sort of, you know, went to public schools. But I was going to say, that's actually the problem. Like, we still haven't told the truth about Native Americans and slaves. And, like, we're just indentured servants. Like, we didn't, you know, there was no kind of major. That's yeah. right. That's right. And, and as and as sort of, as I use air quotes here, good white people, um, we think that not being actively racist is enough, right? Mm-hmm. Not being non-racist is not enough. We have to be anti-racist. Otherwise, we are consistently benefiting from our privileges um, and not doing anything to challenge that. And again, we're always benefiting from our privileges, even when we're doing all the work we can anyway. Um, but reading that book for me really made me sort of, I think, transport my mind in a way to imagine, holy shit, like what would I really have done if I was alive during the civil rights era, right? Or, or during the time of, uh, of slavery in America. And, and to really sort of see all to see why white people and those with privilege are always so consistently um, never understanding um, the situation that folks of color are in. Um, And so for me, that really began, you know, to, you know, I started to begin to see, you know, what she calls in the book, the new Jim Crow of, you know, these systems of racial uh, oppression, uh, they don't disappear, they just morph into something else, right? So slavery um, was abolished and then ended up morphing into uh, the new Jim Crow, uh, or to, into the Jim Crow laws and the black codes, and that ended up doing it into, um, into mass incarceration as well. So, you know, in a way, always wondering, like, how could it be in history that, like, well, did you hear people. recently that they found the, uh, the the bones or like the like they excavated? I don't know if I'm using SAT words. I don't know how to say it. They <laughs> excavated or they found like those the, the bodies. In Texas was yeah, yeah, where they they were actually slaves past when slavery ended. That they got people from prisons and made them work plantations. Yes, and so in Texas, I think, right? I believe so. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting just recognizing even that even when we were told like oh this is when it stopped and everybody was like oh sorry about that you know we're all good just kidding so let's just go ahead and sit down and break bread and it's like no like even when we talk about uh law enforcement and so i've seen some of my white friends say like oh my god like i just cannot believe i cannot believe it and it's like but we've been saying that and the fact that people don't recognize that that law enforcement in and of itself started as slave catchers they were slave catchers and so what happened was that um, right around the time um, that, of course, like slavery, quote unquote, ended and um, they when people went to war um, and they came back and found out that some of their job, quote unquote, jobs were taken. Some of the mm-hmm. narrative they're using around uh, Mexican-Americans or people over the border or immigrants altogether. Um, they started using those systems from that were still in place from uh, slave catching 
and they made it into this thing of we're here to protect and serve, but who are they protecting and serving? That's right. Yeah. And, and, and I think, yeah, for me, understanding, right, that legacy you're talking about the uh, as police sort of um, originating as slave catchers and, uh, you know, and more in the, in the north as uh, strike breakers, you know, essentially, mm-hmm. um, was a big sort of turning point, right? And I think mm-hmm. part of this is also oftentimes in the media we see poli- police portrayed as very neutral, uh, yeah. neutral people. And I think that's <laughs> part of the indoctrination process into white supremacy, right? It's like, you know, when you buy the toys, the police are in the same the same box as the EMT and the firemen, except that the EMT and the firemen have never been uh, the front lines of a system of racial oppression and control. Um, it's so weird. I've struggled. Um, and I've talked about this in social justice spaces because I used to think I was the farthest left that there was, mm-hmm. but apparently I'm not right. because when I'm friends with Rose McGowan and when I recently like had her on, like th- there are still people to this day that wanted nothing to do with me because they're like, how could you like talk to that bitch? She's racist mm. and she's transphobic. And I'm like, she's a lot, but she's <laughs> none of those things. Mm. You know what I mean? And so what I recognized is that like I had a lot of shame because I've actually met law enforcement mm. that were actually really fucking nice to me. Mm-hmm. I've met, like, I've, I've told and you my so, stories. I've, I mean, I, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I have just mm-hmm. over 10 years sober and I've, I should have had a, you know, DUIs, <laughs> multiple of them. And I was, you know, twice I was stopped by police and twice easily every, everything about me qualified me to go to jail. But they didn't. Right. I mean, one time they escorted me home. Uh, another time they gave me the option of sleeping in my car and letting me, waking me up at three in the morning and saying, go home. Um, so I've had, you know, I've had my great experiences, but I do know that it's the other side exists thing. too. Like one time I was, so I don't have a record, but mm. I was a passenger in a stolen car mm. and they took me in, did not know that I was trans. Of course, the lesbian cop comes from around the thing and it's like, what is your name? Mm. And I was like, Ashley Marie Preston. And they were like, no, your real name. And I'm like, bitch, like, first of all, but mm. like, that is my real name. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but she was so uh, obviously like she came for me. But so I was crying, sobbing, so humiliated because at the time I wasn't out as trans. Like I was kind of living under the radar, not telling people for fear of my safety, obviously. Um, and this cop, like I had to use the bathroom and they were like, OK, yeah. And so. Um, he was like, I have to take you like to the men's restroom. And I lost my fucking shit. Like, mind you, mm-hmm. like I just I, I lost it. And um and he was like, um, he got me to the door and we went in. He was like, I'm so sorry you're going through this. I'm gonna let you use the restroom with the door shut. Mm-hmm. Don't make me regret it or you will. Mm. And I was just like Okay, got mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. But that, and then another time they stopped us, um, and we had drugs in the car, and they let all it, it was all trans women and like one gay guy, and like <laughs> they took him because he had like a want for something else, but they let us go. Right. And so there are these instances in which like where like, and I know that we're not there yet, but eventually we're going to, it's sticky, have to come to a place where we can have some of these conversations mm-hmm. with some of the ones on the inside mm-hmm. who really are aware of some of these things and are trying to make changes, but it's really difficult because well, we, you can get the same backlash from some. the left. We have, we have sheriff, you know, West Hollywood sheriff during pre and post prop eight, when we would demonstrate from like 7 PM to like 3 AM. I mean, they were amazing. They really took care of us and, 
they exist. They're out there. I, um, yeah, I think you know. I have a. I personally um, believe in uh, as a as a very future goal. If if there is a world in which everyone is free, mm-hmm. uh, it has to be a world without prisons and without police. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that. I doubt that I will see this in my lifetime. Right? Is there a blueprint that you imagine when you think of it, like what that would look like? Yeah. So I think you know some certain things need to be sort of in place in its stead, right? And again, this is again far off, sort of in the future, right? And mm-hmm. I think even if we if we looked at you know uh, you know when the when abolitionists were were working to end slavery you know I don't, I don't think that we ha- that the folks had like a definitive blueprint of what the economy might look like otherwise right or or, or the systems right that would be in place to sort of um, to accommodate for for people who are um, going to no longer be enslaved um, but I think so uh, going back to I think police initially is like I don't I don't believe that that all police or maybe even most police are ill-intentioned, right? But I think that, you know, the thing is, despite an individual officer's, officer's intentions, the laws that they are enforcing are inherently racist and classist, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm trying to figure out where the good cops and the bad cops are when I'm at Standing Rock, right, and I'm watching these police with tear gas mm-hmm. um, who are trampling on uh, indigenous people's land, it doesn't really matter to me who's a good cop and who's right. a bad cop, right? Because you're doing your job. And your job is to preserve capitalism and inequality. Mm-hmm. So I think in that way, you know, you know, and my experiences with police had always been sort of rather uh, fine, you know, mm-hmm. uh, until I started filming the police, right? And this is something that I think white people need to do because we get a different, very different response and are very under a very different risk than when folks of color. There and was trans a viral that. video that that there was a white woman. She was like a soccer mom, mm. and he had stopped her, and she was literally chewing. She was handing this man his ass, like him and his partner, mm. and she was like, "I will have you eating out of the dumpster, like you trash. Like, do right. you know who I That's am? Right. And I am the wife of like." Right. And she was just wearing that privilege. I mean, she was just beating him over the head with privilege, right. and it was so interesting be- because. We've gotten shot simply for being in a car reaching over to get our insurance with our with our family and children and things like that in the car. We've right. been shot in our grandparents' yard holding the cell phone. We like so you you have they have videos of them beating the hell out of people whose hands are behind their back. They're begging for their lives. They're not, and so there's this thing where I always ask my friends and people who aren't my friends and even online trolls who are like problematic it's like when you look back which side of history would you have been on Mm -hmm. because people love to talk about what they would have did during slavery or what they would have did in little rock arkansas in 1956 Mm -hmm. or or what they would have did during world war ii but it's like now we're seeing that our that the social climate has become so um dangerous that people are able to ask themselves that question, but they're actually tuning out. And that reminds me of of one of my favorite quotes and um, Eli Wiesel and also yes. Desmond Tutu. I don't know; it's been it's been associated with both of them, and I love this quote. It's something in lines with "There is no such thing as neutra- neutra- being neutral." If you're neutral, then you are on the side of the oppressor, mm-hmm. you know. And and it's actually a longer quote than that. And you know, unfortunately, most of the world don't care. They really don't. Even if they know it, they don't care. Um, you know, and that's a sad truth. And and they, if you confront them with it, they have this. I don't want to be involved. 
It's not my problem. I'm fine. I love you people. I love gay people. You right. know, we can go shopping and you can redo my house. But <laughs> but that's it. It stops there. Right. And yeah. Um, yeah and, and I think I would say building on that too, right? Like the idea of, I believe my interactions with police officers could be quite friendly, but the moment I start filming them is the moment you see the fact that accountability is purposely not built into policing. Yeah. Right. Also, you broke the silent agreement. Right. So there's this silent agreement that, and you talked about it a little bit earlier, like about kind of like the bro code kind of, but right. it also exists across different verticals. Like this, the, this idea that as a white man, mm-hmm. you're supposed to understand what I'm up against. Right. Like, you know how they are, exactly. like, you know, so you're supposed to automatically co-sign, defend and step up to right. that. And so when you challenge that, there's this visceral uh, shock yes. <laughs> that they that they experience right, you know right. and it's kind of like and it actually happens even in the African American community like when I've actually called out Dave Chappelle for his problematic shit mm. or like Little Duval or Charlamagne the God or whoever there's this thing of how could you mm. like we have it hard enough and right. I'm like wrong audience no sell I'm a black fucking trans woman in America right. that like like I th- you get no sell from me so what we're supposed to so black women or femmes are supposed to just Take or anything like blindly. Bag, I'm or? supposed to. I'm supposed to blindly support a gay man who gave hundreds of millions to Trump and his campaign because he's gay. <laughs> well, that was the Caitlyn thing. You know, were, exactly. like Caitlyn, Caitlyn Jenner is a trans woman, and I'm like, no. Caitlyn Jenner is a white wealthy trans woman. So yeah. why she's being shot for the cover of Vanity Fair? Black and brown trans women are just being shot. Yes, right. And so there's this huge like difference. And then people talk about like the identity politics, like. Mm, all the identity politics and this and it's that and it's like I think identity politics are important because again you were talking about intersectionality because unless you recognize that people who have overlapping oppression are at greater risk you're not really as progressive as you think you are absolutely and and to and also all politics are identity politics right if they're yeah. not explicitly identity politics for marginalized folks yeah. they're identity politics that benefit white cisgender men, Mm -hmm. right? So if I'm just talking about economics, you know, quote unquote, without a lens of understanding how it affects different marginalized groups, I'm just talking about the way that it's going to benefit someone that already has that privilege, right? Right. And I think a big part of that, you know, as it relates to economics and sort of the idea of prison reform or abolition even is, you know, what makes communities safe, right? And, And we look at some communities where the crime, you know, is lower, you know, than others, and it's jobs, right? It's jobs, it's healthcare, it's uh, growing in a com- in a community where people are valued and there's dignity and there's resources, right? You know, giant wealth uh, disparities is is one of the most enormous sort of causes of crime, right? And we live in you're a city. You're talking about saviorism, even like saviorism. When I hear saviorism, I think gatekeeping. Yes, because you're gatekeeping the resources. We're not asking you to save us. We're asking you to afford us access to the resources to save ourselves. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, when we live in a city with you know sixty thousand homeless people, but I think we have like fifty nine billionaires here or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about building three and a half, you know, point five billion dollars of yeah. jails. You know, in L. A you know, that money could be going towards housing. And but it's privatized, so there's money in it. Of course. It's an industrial complex. Yeah. So. And so, you know, we, we have the resources, right? The thing is, what we don't have is the political will, right? right. And, and we especially don't have the political will by the folks that look like me, right? The folks and who need to be contributing the most. Folks who look like us. Because I have been saying this, and it's even going to come up in the TED Talk that I'm doing in September, you can be African-American and still be an agent of anti-blackness. 
you can be um some you can be a woman and you can promulgate uh, misogyny you can be and so the thing is that we have to get to a place where we're looking at how we move throughout our own community and when we see people that are doing things that are harmful and detrimental we pull them up on it mm-hmm. there i just because somebody is trans and, and there doesn't mean they get a pass just because somebody is black doesn't mean they get a pass because that historically even when we talk about like slave catchers and slavery field slave house slave dynamic Mm -hmm. that was intentional divide and conquer has always been the best strategy because you give one this sense of like privilege over the other and you watch them throw one another under the bus so if it means that i'm going to be able to feel the, the the heat from master's house while you're out there, then I'm going to take that chance because it's every person for themselves. Right, right. And it's interesting, even the sort of the, you know, sort of new model of looking at some of this stuff for me in the last year or so is really that, you know, white supremacy, you know, benefits, uh, you know, all white people above people of color, all things being equal. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, actually, the system of racism really benefits the people at the very, very top. Right. Right. So working class and poor white people, uh, cut off their nose to spite their face because, you know, if I've been sold the lie that, you know, people of color and specifically black folks are abusing welfare, uh, you know, then I will vote against this, even if it's in my best interest. Right. right? And even though statistics, actually, the data shows that more just as much just as many white people actually have welfare. Yes. More. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we don't uh, even know that. Right. But the yeah. people that get to benefit from that. And again, you know, yeah. on a, on a one to one comparison, white folks are still coming out on top uh, when yeah. it comes to people of color. But you know, the thing that our country has always feared, you know, is uh, you know people of color and white folks coming together to actually fundamentally restructure the entire economic system in a way that works for the mass of people and not just the one percent or even the point one of the one percent. Right. So it's we. I see some people that are completely. I've lost so many friends and like been like bye bitch because I don't have the wherewithal because they were completely just unwilling. They were completely cognitive. uh, There was so much cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. They were just myopic in their perspective of like how other people lived. Even when I tried to explain, do you have advice for someone who's wanting to interrogate their own privilege, Mm -hmm. but they don't know how to confront their own racism? Yeah, so... I mean, I think it's like inherent, not necessarily that they're outward, but just the fact sure. that the fact that we I mean, uh, the dark it, egregious past of America in, in general. Exactly. It needs to be said that that all of these things require a lifetime of, of unlearning. Right. Mm-hmm. These are these are the social conditions of, that, that we live in. Right. And every day we are exposed to white supremacist ideals that is mm-hmm. sort of just, you know, that we're indoctrinated into. If you, if, if I had if I'd heard me saying this a couple of years ago, I would have been like, man, what the fuck is this guy talking about? <laughs> you know what I mean? That doesn't make any sense to me. But at the same time, when we think, you know, even in terms of film and television, right, we see it, we see a, a cast of a film or a TV show that's mostly black actors. Uh, we think, oh, that's a, that's a black show, right? But mm-hmm. when we see it, a uh, uh, cast of all white actors, as white people, we're very, very like, wow, this is a white show, right? We're all the fucking people of color in this. Um, uh, so, you know, I think what, what really comes down to is there has to be a will to understand, right? And, and there has to be a willingness to be sort of critical and self-reflect and to educate ourselves, right? I mean, that's why I'm reading so much is because I'm, I'm making up on a lifetime of, of being completely unaware of the ways that I've been indoctrinated into this. And I have to understand that it is work. It is satisfying work. It is hard work, 
but it is work, right? And if and if I'm only waiting for or asking, you know, women of color to like explain their experiences to me for the millionth time, then I'm not really doing the fucking work, right? And to have to sort of, you know, as a woman of color, you know, who has these experiences, to, to have to have her distill it every time for me and break it down to the most bare bones level is frankly insulting, right? Because it means that I don't actually give a shit enough to go out of my way and to do that, right? And I'll say that, you know, as white folks and as white men, like, we very rarely read books by women of color. <laughs> we just don't, right? Like, of course, most people that are published are white men because of all the, you know, systemic, uh, you know, factors at play. But then we often, you know, we're even trained. The, con- the, the construct of intelligence and education, even the whole system in and of itself. Exactly. Right. And so this is one of the few fields where you'll see, you know, women, uh, black women who have a Ph.D. in like, you know, in studies around critical race theory and white people are like, eh, I don't know. It sounds like and I'm like, are, are do you have a fucking Ph.D. in that or do you have a Ph.D. in just walking around and not thinking about it ever until you have your own theories that every other white person has? When you when you talked about um, casts of TV shows and films, it reminded me of. In the 90s, you know, uh, growing up, uh, I used to like, we would watch all these TV shows that took place in New York, like Friends and Will and Grace and Mad About You and Seinfeld. And the entire cast was white. Yeah. And it's the literally the most diverse city in America, right. even more than LA is New York. And yet, not one person of color was on any of those casts. And, and they're more than those shows, too. It's very interesting. That wasn't too long ago when you really think about it as as to. And I still don't think that we're anywhere close in Hollywood, in, in television or film, um, in, in terms of really reflecting um, true, you know, the rainbow that's America. We had uh, recently um, Stephen Canals, who's um, creator, co-executive producer of Pose, um, mm. come on the show nice. and kind of talk about the impact of like what the show has been in. So there is this like interesting dialogue around having um, people of color or people of um, of marginalized experiences. Uh, having a place in these spaces in film and television in music i know more recently there was a lot of conversation around uh travis scott and lament and amanda lapore um this trans woman that was actually taken off of the cover of his album because she was in a piece of work that was commissioned by um from like david LaChapelle. and so while everyone was like you know that's transphobic as fuck like you know this this and that like what's going on i'm actually um tomorrow it goes live i uh, did an article for billboard um and i'm actually talking about how there are game changers in hip-hop who are actually shifting the social ecology jay-z mm. just had janet mock uh, in his Family Feud video. Mm. Janet Mock was also just in the Blood Orange video. Trace Lissette was in Maroon 5's video mm-hmm. with Cardi B. Um, and Big Frida was in Drake's In My Feelings video. Mm. And so you have Drake, Jay-Z, um, um, and then Common, when I was a speaker at the Teen Vogue Summit, he was talking about black liberation and he included trans women in black advocacy. Mm. And then you also had, um, I just saw a video um which was uh, Neo just also talked about uh, being inclusive of like trans women and LGBTQ people and video and art and music and all that. So what we're actually seeing is that because we're willing to talk about it and we're willing to allow it to get messy, um, 
there is change happening because we can't heal what we don't reveal. There's no there's no other way to do it without it no. being messy. It's yeah. Um, because we have to be inconvenienced. Like exactly. some people say, well, I just don't want to hear it. And it's like, well, bitch, if you're tired of hearing it, imagine what we must feel like living. In. Nobody's rights were given to them because they asked for them. Exactly. Politely, whether it was. Yeah women or 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 the african-american community the lgbt the you know anyone and it's it's got to get we've you know we've got to continue to be in their face coalition keeps communities cohesive and so every major movement that's ever Mm -hmm. succeeded and thrived has happened through allyship so it was um men who used their right to vote so that women could have that right. It was husbands and wives who were standing behind marriage equality. Um, it just all of yeah, these. Like during the, the civil rights movement, a lot yeah, of white the, people, a lot of the Jewish Americans mm-hmm. came and rallied with the African-Americans for this. So we've, we've, we need allies. We need hetero, cisgender allies. But there's a question I've been wanting to ask you, and it's always a question not just of you I'm curious about, but it's just... Um, white cisgender uh, heterosexual man Mm -hmm. if you if we strip away your activism Mm -hmm. like just forget about everything we've talked about today what are your struggles Mm -hmm. as a white cisgender heterosexual man Hmm. well you know it's interesting i think to me uh you know my struggles are linked to the struggles of others others you know and and i think that you know initially and i think is partly where the savior mentality comes in is unfortunately is when people don't realize that, right? When I think that I'm when I'm doing this, when I'm doing anti-racism work for you or for people of color, mm-hmm. or I'm doing anti-sexism work for women or uh, non-binary people, that's when it gets into the the tricky territory of of then you actually owe me something as well. So I think for me, you know, uh, if I think about, I mean, I guess this is related to activism as well. But when I think about you know, there are struggles of being a man. Obviously, we have different words for that, you know, and I still have male privilege. Um, but that is also very much tied to how I am in the world uh, with uh, in relation to internalized homophobia, right, or interpersonal homophobia or sexism as well. So I know that for me, for example, you know, I'm a very sensitive person, right? And, you know, uh, growing up, my parents are about as, you know, without being activists about as liberal as you can get, you know, and, and growing up, I remember, uh, my mom told me if I was gay, she was like, that's great. No problem. You know, preemptively told me that, um, my parents never told me not to, not to cry, to be a man, to toughen up, but those messages are are out there. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, a big part of like my own sort of, uh, self growth is understanding how, um, the way that I'm socialized to be oppressive to others um, is actually dehumanizing to me as well, right? And and when I when I treat women as you know as objects uh, as I've been you know taught to do, um, unless I'm constantly unlearning that, that is actually dehumanizing to me too because then I'm playing into these gender roles, right? And and sort of in this um, you know what can be called this construct of a man box, which is all these mm-hmm. things of like you know always be in control, be tough, you know don't cry. Um, be dominant, you know, all that shit that, what's that? Yeah, I actually talk about that. So there's a, I just wrote an article for Playboy that's about to go live Mm. um, because I'm actually writing for them and I'm talking about the dynamic, like this thing with like cis hetero men and trans women Mm. and kind of like this idea 
around the construct of like gender expression, like this thing that we have to be damsels if we want our womanhood to be valid. Right. And then men have to be like this super macho so that there's no question who's in charge in that relationship or in that interaction or whatever. So, right. To, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll say, you know, one, one thing actually that I, I guess I haven't gotten to talk about this publicly yet, but you know, I'm, I, weekly I find myself going back to experiences that I've had when I was younger and sort of re-looking at them through a different lens. And I remember the the one time that I said bros before hoes, I think was the one time, at least it was the last time. I was in college <laughs> and I had a friend of mine who was a man who uh, had just started dating a woman and uh, was going to go hang out with her and I felt like we hadn't been hanging out as much. And I was like, hey man, bros before hoes. And I think about that now and I think that was because I did not feel capable of saying to him, Hey, buddy, I love you. I appreciate you. I miss you. I'd love if we could hang out. I'm worried that perhaps that this relationship is, you know, is going to make us less close. But as a cisgender, white, heterosexual man, that is not something that you are, quote unquote, allowed to say, right? That easily puts you in the category of... That's um, gay. Yeah, exactly. Of easily shamed from homophobia. So instead, I dehumanized women and weaponized that against him to put him in his place, right? Because I, and to shove him back in the man box. Because essentially, if I'm telling him bros before hoes, I'm telling you, you're breaking the man code. You're treating a woman in a way that you should be treating me because I'm a man and I'm your equal and she is not your equal, right? Mm-hmm. So in that way, I can see that I'm both using the dehumanization of women um, to uh, to dehumanize myself without doing that because I'm in these constructs of masculinity. What has your dating life been like? Like that, <laughs> like, because I actually read the comments mm. and it's so interesting because like, there are so many women that are like, oh my God. And I actually, like, I love reading your threads in all honesty because mm. change is happening in your threads mm. on your comment section every single day mm. because it, it touches my heart when I see women affirming your manhood, mm. like cis hetero women that are like, good for you for standing up for trans people, good for you for LGBTQ, good for you for black people, good for you. And they're supporting that. Because it's sexy. Yeah. I mean, let's just get real. Well, well the thing to it also is that there's kind of like this double like kind of how you pushed him back in the man box because you felt alienated by his new relationship Mm -hmm. there are women who cis heteronormative women who will feel that maybe they're not enough or they're not and so they will do the same thing Mm. in a sense like you know man up I, I honestly see it a lot in communities of color especially because as women as black women like our brown women are we've had to be so strong and take mm-hmm. on so much and there has been so much that's been placed in our laps that we don't even get to be feminine feminism is reserved our feminine energy femininity is reserved for white women mm. it's one of those things look at media they always is to pick prime example michelle obama they pick that woman apart they yeah. all kinds of bodybuilders and this and she's a man she's da 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 and it's because black and brown women have always been put in a position where we don't get to be, we don't get to experience But femininity. Michelle Obama committed an egregious sin when she wore that sleeveless dress. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so what is that? So I'm not going to go like too far into, yeah. but like, what does that feel like to have like, to see women that are just like. Yeah. You know, it's this interesting um, relationship of understanding that like, uh, that people affirming uh, is is fe- healing and it feels great. And especially recently, I feel like I've gotten as as I also talked about like um, you know fat acceptance and mm-hmm. and and all these things. You know, I had someone message me that they woke up from an anxiety 
you know, they had so much anxiety and woke up from a dream the other night and, and then saw my story, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that was about, you know, not shaming um, folks in larger bodies and felt comforted in that. Mm-hmm. And that feels so good um, and feels really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also understanding that, like, uh, you know, I think when people start speaking out about these things, to not let yourself be intoxicated by that at the same time, right? right? Well, also, you're not just doing it to fuck women. Right. Because it's so interesting when I see trans exclusionary radical feminists mm. come for trans women, mm. but then they're embracing of like male feminist. And mm. I'm like, wait a minute. So, and the irony is there are male feminists who, if you are saying you're a male feminist and then you're being transphobic, you're not a fucking feminist. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it's one of those things where feminism has now become the new like, how can I get laid on Saturday? Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> yeah. And I think that I imagine, like, I feel like those that is a particularly manipulative way of 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 being in the world. And at the same time, I think that again, right, just because I call myself a feminist, I mean, from the moment that I did that a couple of years ago for the first time to now, my understandings of of these issues and even how they interplay in my own. Uh, dynamics in in life and dating uh, continues to grow and it has to right like Mm -hmm. if I'm believing that just because I call myself a feminist now I'm now I'm like my work is done you know and you know and I'm not examining how that shows up in my interpersonal dynamics I'm inherently going to be causing problems right and I'm going to be doing that at times too because look this bar is so fucking low out there you know and uh, for (laughs) for men you know what I mean Um, and, and what men bring to the table um, that I understand that like, you know, it can be exciting for someone that even for a man that even identifies with that term for heterosexual women or women that are attracted to men. Um, so I think, of the, you know, it, it's that it's that constant thing, too, where we always have to be sort of examining that. And I think there's an additional responsibility that comes with being someone who um, even who identifies as a feminist, as a man to to to, I think, remind folks that like that does not mean that, you know, perfection is is anywhere near close or anywhere near possible um, and to kind of continue sort of digging in and doing that work. You, know, you can't stay clean off yesterday's shower. You know what I mean? So it's kind of one of those things where it's like, you know, it's a constantly daily effort. And I like that you said perfection is, you know, it's virtually impossible because for those who are listening and they're listening to you, especially other heterosexual cisgender men thinking, oh shit, I'm in trouble because I don't know a tenth of what this guy knows. <laughs> You know, I think it's important for those of us that are activists, um, you know, like Ashley and myself is, you know, it's it's okay if you come up to this and start your own, whatever your um, activism is, and you use the wrong term mm-hmm. or you make mistakes. You know, I remember I was, I was at a um, leadership event like earlier this year and Somebody didn't know the difference between gender fluid and gender queer. Mm. And they were like, I actually don't. <laughs> terrified. Well, they were terrified. And I said, listen, it's okay. I mean, mm-hmm. the fact that you care enough to like, ex- like explore and see what it means, like, it's okay. Um, and we, those of us that are, and not that, you know, Ashley and I know it all, but it's important for, for all of us in the, in the LGBT community to not like jump on someone the minute they say one wrong thing or, you know, the wrong uh, term is used, you know, it's just like, just start doing it. It's okay. And I remember when I worked at LA Weekly and we had a, we had someone transition from female to male Mm -hmm. and there was this whole discussion in the office with HR and all of that and what, 
you know, is everyone comfortable using, you know, the restroom change and all of that? And, <laughs> Checking and my, for their comfort. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Well, and my publisher and I were in the car running where we're going and he, you know, he was, he was just so afraid of the whole thing. And I knew my publisher was like a total cool guy. Like there was, you know, he was no way like, you know, transphobic, homophobic, anything like that. But I was like, okay, Matt, not you, <laughs> the other Matt. It's like, Matt, it, it's okay. Like mm -hmm. we're all... We're all learning as we go along. I mean, a lot of this stuff I've learned in the last few years. It's not like, and it changes all the time. And I know something will change, you know, two years from now. Uh, so it's important for those that are listening to not think that they have to have the, uh, you know, to be as evolved as Matt or, or Ashley um, to like really get involved. And, and I still get it wrong, like all the time. In fact, there are things where I constantly have to kick myself, like especially around women's issues mm. and like abortion mm. and things like that. I grew up in Kentucky. I grew up in the Bible Belt. I'm of the mindset, like I remember the fucking Bible scripture, like he knew you before you were in the womb. And so I have had to constantly check, internalize misogyny, like this misogyny that I didn't even know. Like I grew up... It was my mom and my sister mm. but again it's so and so we get to be imperfect in that way and it goes back to your point talking about confronting uh white supremacy and and how like white people benefit from it i have to confront and unlearn things and it'll creep back in and i'll be kind of doing like an auto update like right. an audit and i'm like oh how did you get back in here right and it's yeah yeah and and i think you know to i i appreciate the the idea of also that you know um marginalized folks you know the idea of of calling uh, us in um mm -hmm. as opposed to being calling us out and at the same time i'll say for the listeners out there of <clears throat> particularly of who share identities with me or you know even the white folks out there that even when you know for example when it comes to race when folks of color uh don't find it that they can or want to do it nicely um that we still have to be able to understand uh, that there is a message there that we should be able to try and understand, right? And and we can't let our uh, tone policing or the fact that it's not being done in a way that is not comfortable to us uh, shut off and say, well, this person is an asshole, so mm -hmm. I'm not going to listen to anything they're saying or to, or to, to resort to like, well, I'm well-intentioned, therefore my impact um, is actually not relevant here. So mm -hmm. for both of those things, you know, I, I always appreciate when yeah. folks call me in, but I also know that I, that I can't expect that. Um, then yeah. I have to sort of do that work myself. Also, it's why the work that you're doing is appreciated because I also want to say this. You were talking about kind of like jumping in and doing things for people. And I think that you were looking at that perspective uh, from an intrinsic place. Mm -hmm. But I also want to be clear that um, when you are of the mindset that you want to help communities of color and you want to take some of that burden off of them, by all means, I'm an educator, others are educators, but not everyone subscribes to that. Mm -hmm. And so people don't realize that when you're expected to educate every single person you come across on mm. a daily basis, it's like death by way of a thousand paper cuts. And the reality <laughs> is that like um, it's other people should take on some of that burden. Absolutely. You know, especially since when we educate, we have to delve into our own personal trauma. Absolutely. And so those wounds never heal because we always have to keep digging into them. Absolutely. And and again, it doesn't take much to, right? Like, 
Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, most white folks have never read a single book about racism, right? <laughs> and let alone, you know, doing it on a consistent basis. So if we just do some of that work, right, if we actually mm-hmm. care and we understand that we live in a culture where we can't be free from that bias, we have to understand that we have to be re-educating ourselves. So yeah. if you give a shit, do it. Yeah. For those who want to find out about uh, Man Enough, where could they go to, to be yeah. part of that conversation? Yeah. So we are manenough.com uh, um, is the website. And there's also on Facebook Watch, you can check it out as well. And you know, a lot of that comes from, I know you asked me this earlier and I didn't get to it. I hope we have time or a moment I can uh, tell you about it. But, you know, uh, Justin Baldoni um, sort of came to me with this idea that he had. Um, and, uh, you know, in my own life, part of my own theory of change is, is, to, is the conversations uh, that can really transform uh, people and, and the world, right? The sort of the, the conversations we have with ourselves. And then the interpersonal conversations we have, opportunities to interrupt sexism or racism or any of these different forms of oppression. Um, and Justin essentially wanted to, you know, create a version of that that was scalable, right? That was that was videotaped, that we can sort of model what it looks like to interrogate um, these constructs of masculinity and oftentimes how it sort of um, puts us in position positions to uh, to be oppressive to other people. And I am grateful that he took that bold step because I know that even in sometimes my own perfectionism sometimes i i know that uh you know i could probably be resistant to that i'm glad he took that bold step and i will say that he's someone that i greatly appreciate um who is one of the least defensive i would say white men that i've ever met um and even when he came to me with it we didn't know each other super well and i was slightly nervous because in my mind here was someone sort of new to these ideas and knowing in my mind how far i needed to go in order to feel comfortable like i could put my stamp on it but i was very pleased that you know he was interested in having this conversation and including my perspective, which is often um, sometimes more radical as well. For those who want to follow some of the work you're doing sidebar or your uh, daily inspirational post or educational bits, where can they follow you on social? Yeah. So that would be uh, at Matt McGorry, M-A-T-T-M-C-G-O-R-R-Y uh, on Instagram. I would say mostly have been a little more off the Twitter uh, recently, um, <laughs> but yeah, you can check me out on there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, bringing so me. much uh, valuable knowledge and education and vulnerability. Um, it's definitely required if we're ever going to shift the social ecology. I really appreciate you both. Thank you. Thank you Thanks, for having Matt. me. Yeah, and it's been a great conversation. Thank you. And now it's time for your safe space. Today's question comes by way of text, and they said, I am a very closeted trans guy living in a pretty transphobic country. My dysphoria is the worst it's ever been. Do you have any advice to combat dysphoria for someone who cannot come out because of safety reasons? That is a very good question um, because that's actually my story. Most people see me as like, the Xena warrior princess of trans identity, like out here, like kicking shit in. And, but in reality, um, I was actually very uh, timid and afraid because most of my friends were either uh, going to prison or they were flat out being murdered. And so I saw the way that society treated black trans women and I didn't want any part of the the, the degradation, the dehumanization. I didn't want for people to hate me any more than I already hated myself. And so I felt that if I lived... 
in a bubble in which I didn't have to openly connect with my transness, that it would somehow protect me. And, and what I found was that my unwillingness to embrace myself openly and authentically was the root of my dysphoria. Because it wasn't, I always thought that it was other people that would have the most to say about me or that would feel the most about me. When in reality, there were moments when I was projecting because when I did tell people, there were some people, I was actually kind of pissed and offended. They were like, okay, yeah. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> like they knew or they suspected or there were just other people, like, especially since like, I've always been interestingly enough, I have girlfriends, but a lot of my friends are cishet normative men. And so it was this thing of like, oh my God, like I don't, so kind of like even just like internalized phobia, like I thought they were going to discard me. I thought they were going to. And when I realized that it was me mm. who felt, and this isn't always the case, but for me, that was the case. Um, I recognized that I was my biggest critic. Um, and so what I would suggest um, is to find one or two people that you can live authentically with. Um, and I actually personally recommend even outside of the community because we tend to live in these silos mm. and these like bubbles in which we're not giving other people the opportunity to show up for us. Mm. And so um, my life has become so rich and full because I have so many friends from so many different walks of life, so many perspectives and so many things to offer to not only myself, but the community. So I think that you deserve it. You deserve to be seen. You deserve to hold space and you don't have to be apologetic about that. If you have a question that you would love to leave for us in our safe space, you can do so at 424-261-9063. This has been your safe space. Thank you again for coming on the show today, Matt. It has been a pleasure as always. Um, be sure to check out Orange is the New Black and How to Get Away with Murder. And stay tuned. We have another amazing show coming up for you. <laughs> Shook with Ashley Marie Preston is a Reverie original podcast. This podcast is executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, Damian Pelliccioni, Chris Rodriguez, LaShawn McGee, and Ashley Marie Preston. Created and produced by Ashley Marie Preston and Kyle Sarge. Sound engineered by Bert Lambro, edited by Kyle Sarge.